today's episode, we open our Bibles to 1 Samuel 26. David learns that Saul is pursuing him in the wilderness of Ziph with 3,000 men. He sneaks into Saul's camp at night with Abishai, his nephew, and finds Saul sleeping with a spear and a water jug near his head. Abishai wants to kill Saul with his own spear, but David refuses to harm the Lord's anointed. Instead, he takes them and leaves. Then from a safe distance, he calls out to Saul and his commander Abner, rebuking them for not guarding the king. Good morning and blessed Pentecost season. Today is Monday, June 5th, and you're listening to Thy Strong Word, where each weekday morning we explore the holy scriptures through which God bespeaks us righteous and nourishes our faith. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo of St. John Lutheran Church in Laverne, Minnesota. We give thanks to God for the Lutheran Heritage Foundation, whose generous contributions help support Thy Strong Word. LHF is a ministry which provides Lutheran resources in various languages. Visit them online at lhfmissions.org to learn more about their translating and publishing work. But for this morning, please join me in welcoming my guest to help us discern and divide and explore 1 Samuel chapter 26, it's the Reverend Rick Jones, chaplain and vice president of spiritual life for the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota. Pastor Jones, welcome back to Thy Strong Word. Thank you. Thank you. Always enjoy my time. Yes, and I love having you on here. I love hearing about the great work that you guys are doing. Um, off the air, you mentioned a little bit about how summer starts to be a little busy for you guys. I can imagine. Uh, maybe, if you don't mind, share with the folks at home just a little bit about what's coming up for you. Sure. Well, this week we have graduations at two of our facilities, so that's a lot of extra prep and celebration. All good things, of course. But uh, yeah, so Bismarck and Minot have graduates this year, so that's um, some extra things to prepare for. And then... After about a week of settling into summer, we start what we call summer programming on all three of our campuses. So there's activities and special events to help keep our residents occupied um, throughout the day. And then we change up the, the therapy and group schedule to allow for the afternoons to not be taken up by school. Instead, they have this programming now. And so it changes a lot of schedules. That way, we also bring in servant teams to our campuses a couple times each summer. Uh, this year, it sounds like we're going to have two of them in Fargo, which is a wonderful blessing, and we love hosting people that way. And there's just a lot of activities, you know, people going away for conferences and presentations and things like that. So just a lot of different schedule changes adding to, um, you know, the the workload and the hecticness uh, from day to day throughout the summer. So it's just uh, those changes, those differences to, to help make sure the kids' days are full and uh, are providing them with those outlets and that structure to make sure they're getting the resources they need to be successful in their time here. Well, I think that's great. You know, it's, it's sort of a little bit of a, a difference from the parish life because here in the <laughs> parish, at least where I am, things tend to slow down a little bit. Uh, sure. I mean, there's a ton of planning going on, but a, a lot less, I guess, activity, especially here in farming country where you have folks who are spending, you know, they're they're making hay while the sun shines. They're out there any <laughs> second they can get, uh, you know, making, um, doing their work, farming and getting things done. And so, you know, the church kind of bends to that because, yeah. well, you know, when most of them are farmers and that's the vocation God's given them, you have to. Uh, but at the same time, we're preparing for all kinds of great things and continuing to reach out to people. So, well, I'm just always thankful for the work that you guys do and uh, grateful whenever you're taking a little bit of time out of your busy schedule to share God's word with us. And, and our chapter today is chapter 25. Um, in a minute, I'm going to ask you to make maybe give us a little bit of background, what's happened in the previous Actually, our chapter today is 26, to give us a little preview of what's happened in 25. But before I do that, I think it's a good idea for us to begin our time together in prayer. And I invite you to have that prayer for us, if you don't mind. Sure. Lord, as we gather around your word today, we would just ask that you use this as an opportunity to, to strengthen us, to feed us with your word, that we would learn the lessons you would give us there and help it shape us to be the people you've called us to be. Bless us and continue to guide us daily 
by strengthening our faith and trust in all that you provide. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I misspoke earlier. Our text for today is the 26th chapter, but leading up to it was a pretty long chapter, uh, David and Abigail, um, leading all the way up to what's happening today. Maybe just take a few moments, catch people up if they missed, um, this would have been Thursday's episode, um, and let us know where we've been so we can figure out where we're going. Yeah, so this is uh, actually several chapters of David on the run, essentially, from Saul. Uh, Saul is enraged by David for perceived things. He thinks David is after the throne, even though David has not made a movement in that way in any way, shape, or form. And so he's kind of been run out of town, and he's he's living as a fugitive. Uh, so he's been all over the place. Saul keeps pursuing him. Uh, and then in the last chapter, we we get this interlude with David and Abigail. Um, one of the places David goes, there is a, a man named Nabal, or Nabal, uh, however we want to pronounce it there. And uh, his wife, Abigail, wants to help David. Let's see, is she sympathetic to the cause? But Nabal is not. And so... Nabal does not treat David's people very well, um, and it leads to his downfall. Uh, but uh, Abigail is is helpful and and takes care of David's people and gets them on to the next stage of of their their journey of their their time in flight. Um, and I believe that this the, those events uh, people can can listen and and and. And study it, but I, I believe it happens at Carmel. So uh, one of these places that pops up throughout Scripture, where where God is always interceding for His people through their actions and, and through their faithfulness, and this was no exception. Um, so we had a treacherous sort of person that should be helping David and Nabal, and it's the the meek and the the humble one of Abigail, the the the, the wife who doesn't really have much position or station. She is the one who ends up bringing God's grace to David in his time of need. Absolutely. And then that brings us pretty much right here to where we are. You said, you know, David's on the run and Saul, of course, is jealous and he has a hatred for David. Right. Uh, all of it founded on his own paranoia because yeah. even though even though David has been anointed king by Yahweh through Samuel. Mm -hmm. As you pointed out, David continues to honor Saul's position as king until he dies. Well, I mean, Absolutely. I Saul wouldn't know that at this point, but he certainly could have seen that David wasn't trying to usurp his authority in any way. In fact, he just continued to serve faithfully uh, before he was on the run. He even served faithfully through a couple of assassination attempts. Right, yet, right. And yet David did not rebel against him. It's just a, a fascinating thing. We see a lot of good things in David, of course, and David points forward to Christ. And, you know, we see some not-so-great things. The end of the last chapter also was the introduction of uh, some polygamy with David, which, while not uncommon uh, at this time, would certainly have will we'll bring some, some uh, bad things into David's life as, yes. the, as the time goes on. But anyway, that brings us to where we are today. And as I said at the top of the show, this is going to be another opportunity where David could kill Saul. And as the anointed king of Israel, probably could have gotten a pretty good, uh, I guess, a pretty good uh, round of support from people to be the new king. But anyway, that's not how it goes. I'm going to read uh, verse 1 through, oh no, I say about just verse 5 to get us started. Here we go. Then the Ziphites came to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding himself in the hill of Hakilah, which is on the east of Jeshimon? So Saul arose and went down to the wilderness of Ziph with three thousand chosen men of Israel to seek David in the wilderness of Ziph. And Saul encamped on the hill of Hakilah, which is beside the road on the east of Jeshimon. But David remained in the wilderness. And when he saw that Saul came after him into the wilderness, 
David sent out spies and learned that Saul indeed had come. Then David rose and came to the place where Saul had encamped. And David saw the place where Saul lay, with Abner the son of Ner, the commander of his army. Saul was lying within the encampment while the army was encamped around him. Okay, just taking a real quick pause here. Um, you know, David's out here hiding, and Saul <laughs> is chasing after him, as you put it out. Uh, the things that stand out to me is that Saul is going after one man with 3,000 chosen men. This is, this is uh, expert military guys. He's handpicked to go out <laughs> yes. after this, uh, who wasn't too long ago, a shepherd boy. Right. So Saul clearly out for David's head. I mean, this is severe force. 3,000 of the, the choice men, yes, hand-picked soldiers, the best of the best, the cream of the crop, to combat David and what I think he's got 600 sort of men rallying behind him. So a force of five times that size to go after this guy. And he brings along the head of his military forces with with Abner. It's it's madness, and that's what you know Saul is suffering at this time. Um, yeah, very very aggressive move. You know why are you going after this guy? At the end of the 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 chapter, we're going to see David sort of point this out too when he calls himself a flea. But Saul's kind of wasting his time here. There's there's no reason for this. It, it's absolutely absurd that you would have 3,000 men chasing through the countryside after this this small band of of people. Now, this whole situation, is this not uh, what we've already heard before back in Samuel, 1 Samuel 23? I mean, we, we had a similar thing, or if not a retelling of the same thing uh, going on. 1 Samuel 23, verse 19 says... Right. Then the Ziphites went up to Saul at Gibeah, saying, Is not David hiding among the strongholds of Horesh in the hill of Hakilah? Um, why do we have the—is this a retelling, and why do we have the second telling? Yeah, so, I mean, it might go either way. It might be that this is retelling, the, uh, reminding us that this is what the Ziphites did, or this could be a very similar situation again. So the Ziphites were— a people that were descended from Judah. Uh, they should have been kinsmen to David in that regard, but they had betrayed him to Saul. That's what we saw in chapter 23, and now perhaps it's happening again here at the beginning of this chapter. So if this is the second time they're again reporting to Saul that David is in the vicinity. Now, one of the suggestions for why this could be a second time is because they had already betrayed him, they're fearful of David. Uh, he's got him and his his band there, and they're fearful that he's going to retaliate or, or bring retribution on them. And so they're they're sort of ratting him out to, to Saul again. And so this time they're like, Saul, help us. That's a possibility, at least. Um, it's interesting. They're they're going. Where do they have to report this? It's at Gibeah, which is Saul's home. It's where he was born and where he dwells. Uh, they come to him in his most comfortable and secure setting, which is a very stark contrast to David, who's been forced out of his homeland, and he's now living as a fugitive and a nomad. And I think also another evidence, or another piece of evidence for this being a second event and a second betrayal of David by the Ziphites is that um, Saul's disposition in this telling is so much different. I mean, he, Saul has so much more enmity toward David. His yeah. the hardness of his heart is is much greater. And I, I think that we'll see that, yeah, this is just a second event. But they're so close. I mean, it's worth saying, hey, yeah. well, let's l at least look to see if this is a retelling. Yep. And and I, I lean towards this as a second event because there's only so I'm much real you. estate these people are living around too. Right, right, yeah. So the, the places they're talking about... Um, you know, to us, it might we might get lost in the details, but this is very specific place names and describing the region. You know, the, this hill of Hakila is it's likely referring to a ridge of hills or maybe even mountains, um, which are to the east of this land called Ziph, which is an arid area about five miles southeast of Hebron, and it's about fifteen miles west of the Dead Sea. 
most of this whole region is going to be arid and hilly or, or rugged. And we talk, it talks about Jeshimon. Jeshimon is also, while it could be a specific, you know, sort of desert wilderness area, it's also just an idiom that gets used to describe that environment. And so the idiom here could even be, uh, it's on, it's facing the eastern Jeshimon, or it's facing the eastern um, desert, if you will. So lots of details in the places where these events are taking place helps tie it into the lives and the context of the Israelite people. Again, for us, it can sometimes present a challenge because we're separated from the geography by thousands of miles and now thousands of years. But the details themselves help us to see how authentic and familiar this history is, especially for those who live in the area. And so when you're trying to get this vast narrative down, when we get these details, I think we, it lends itself for us to pay attention to him. So if the Ziphites came and they said, hey, he's here, it might just be, hey, let's use that same phrase because it was fit quickly into the story before. We're going to do it again to get us up to speed for the second time. Another thing that stands out is when he sends out the spies and he learns yeah. that, yes, ind indeed, Saul is there. Um, <laughs> it's interesting because Saul is laying i guess near his commander but both of them are laying within the encampment and the entire army is encamped around him now that right. in and of itself probably isn't very unusual they want to protect their king but it certainly gives us a, a nice clear picture of what david's up against so that we know what happens next is that much more uh, impressive right right so well, even the fact that he sent out spies right this time it's proactive it's not just passive you know, kind of how in the cave they just were there. Here David is sending out people to, to see what's going on. He's not sending them to attack. He's, he's, it's not an offensive, you know, maneuver, but it's proactive for discovering exactly what it is that they're facing. They discover, as you said, Saul's army in this standard sort of camp formation. The troops are in a circle likely using their packs and their loads as part of the fortifying perimeter. And then the leader, in this case, the king himself, is secure in the center of the camp. Uh, you know, and it's likely, it's, it's, it's not exactly stated, but the impression you get is Abner's probably very close to Saul, and he's probably serving as, you know, a bodyguard or the secret service for Saul. Um, while the whole company rests. But why you don't have, you know, people on watch, that's a little interesting. That is interesting. Well, let's keep reading. I'm going to start with verse 6, and I'm going to head through probably around verse 12. Here we go. Then David said to Ahimelech the Hittite and to Joab's brother Abishai, the son of Zerui, who will go down with me into the camp to Saul? And Abishai said, I will go down with you. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there lay Saul sleeping with the encampment, with his spear stuck in the ground at his head. And Abner and the army lay around him. Then Abishai said to David, God has given your enemy into your hand this day. Now please let me pin him to the earth with one stroke of the spear, and I will not strike him twice. <laughs> but David said to Abishai, do not destroy him, for who can put out his hand against Yahweh's anointed and be guiltless? And David said, As Yahweh lives, Yahweh will strike him, or his day will come to die, or he will go down into battle and perish. Yahweh forbid that I should put out my hand against Yahweh's anointed, but now take the spear that is at his head and the jar of water and let us go. So David took the spear and the jar of water from Saul's head, and they went away. No man saw it or knew it, nor did any awake, for they were all asleep, because a deep sleep from Yahweh had fallen upon them. So I mentioned earlier, you know, he's right in the middle with the whole army around him, and as we're right. reading the story, we're really getting this image of, wow, they are surreptitiously sneaking into this camp. You know, you ask, <laughs> where are the watchmen? Why are not people noticing? And I guess we're kind of like, we're thinking this is so amazing, and, and it is, 
<laughs> and of course, at the end, we get it's all God's plan, which right. which happens right. to us all the time. We really think we're doing well until oh, right, that's right. <laughs> the Lord <laughs> is the one who who empowers all things. Yeah, yeah. No, it is. It is a really interesting scene, and uh, we'll talk about that. This was a divine sleep that's placed on these people because that same phrasing appears elsewhere. But as we enter this section, uh, it's an interesting little detail here, right? This Ahimelech is the Hittite. It's the only place in scripture where he's mentioned, and it includes his nationality. I think this is because it's trying to uh, distinguish him from a priest of the same name who's mentioned in chapter 22. The priest would not have been a Hittite. He would have been an Israelite from the tribe of Levi. So to have this Ahimelech as a part of the army, it's just the author, you know, distinguishing him. This is this is a different one, not the same one. I want you to know this is a different guy. And so they they put the Hittite on, on his name there. It's also interesting that David has a couple of Hittites entangled in his history. Here, Ahimelech is a faithful servant of the soon-to-be king, and later, David will be an unfaithful leader for Uriah the Hittite with the whole Bathsheba affair, but we'll let the listeners get there when you get there. Um, later still, Solomon will make peace with the Hittites through intermarriage, and they will pay homage to Solomon as the king of Israel. So, we're going to see a whole sort of full circle thing happen with the Hittites and David's line, which I think is just kind of interesting. One of those background things of scripture that adds such richness and depth that we sometimes don't take the time to notice. Absolutely. And and these things will all start piecing together in ways where you go, wow, you know, you can definitely see that God was at work in, right. in history. Yeah. Um, some other people are mentioned here. So we, we've mentioned Saul and, and Abner, his commander, but now we see some of David's leaders are mentioned, uh, his neph and they're both his nephews, Joab and Abishai. Uh, their mother is Zeru Zeruiah. See, I stumbled over it too. Okay. <laughs> Good. Uh, <laughs> this is David's, it is, it is. Uh, this is David's older sister. So he's got um, two of his nephews, two of his close kinsmen as his most trusted people in his army here. Joab will go on to serve as, as David's general before some more drama unfolds with Abner and another member of Joab and Abishai's family. So these people are going to keep cropping up in the, the narrative of, of Samuel and kings here. Well, and he, he moves in with these people, and it's interesting because it says there lay Saul sleeping with the encampment, which we already yeah, knew, yeah. with his spear stuck in the ground at his right. head. Now, you don't often see Saul without this spear. The spear is kind of like a, a sign of his authority, isn't it? Yes. Yes. Yeah, this is his weapon. This is his um, item, signifies him as king and all these sorts of things. Now, this being stuck in the ground at his head isn't necessarily uh, a strange thing other than, I mean, if there was somebody that was going to attack, it sort of advertises where your king is, right? But... Um, I guess this is a, a a custom for leadership in this part of the world. They would it's not just convenience, right? It's right. He knows where it is. If he has to wake up suddenly, it's right there. But it actually, from some of the commentaries and, and histories I looked at, this same custom survived to modern times with several different Middle Eastern groups. And so it's just sort of this this uh, affectation of of what you do when you're in a military camp. The, the leader, his spear is at his head. I don't know why, it's just that's that's yeah. what we found. It's kind of interesting. And so signifying where the leader is, um, a normal sort of custom for them, and another one of those details in the text that, oh yes, this is real, this is real life. This is, we still see people do that. And then as they, they sneak in there, I think, um, what Abish, Abishai or Abishai wants to do, I think some of you know readers are probably feeling some of that too. Yes, let him, let him do it, let him do it. But David restrains him. Um, the restraint is interesting too. But first, Abishai is ready and enthusiastic 
to kill Saul, right? His intensity for the deed is not just shown in the idea of striking him so hard that he's pinned to the ground, but also that the fatal blow would not need a second. It is, he's gonna, I'm gonna kill him with one blow and he's gonna be stuck to the ground. That's how bad I wanna do this. And David restrains him, not with force, but with words. David's demeanor and resolve here reflect some of that character for which we still know David, right? He's called the greatest king of Israel. He's a man after God's own heart. David shows mercy. That's impressive. It reminds me of a scene in Schindler's List, actually. Uh, so Schindler, Liam Neeson, explains to Ray Fine's character, I don't remember his name, but he's the leader of this other concentration camp. And Liam Neeson says, you know, real power is shown in exercising mercy. The lives of these people are, are in his hands, and he can kill any of them that he wants to, but true power lies in not exercising that force, not exercising that authority. David's position on Saul in this moment is exactly that, and it's God's position with us all the time, right? Psalm 130 verse 4, with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. With you there is forgiveness that we may in reverence serve you. David has the power to kill Saul, but he doesn't do it. He doesn't exercise that power. That shows true control. That shows true strength. It's also interesting that David's uh, solution here is not one of force, but of words. There's power in his word to restrain uh, Abishai. Hey. I think that's a beautiful note for us to just yeah. take a few minutes as a break. And sure. uh, we'll think about that and we'll come back and keep on going. So folks, don't go anywhere. Pastor Jones and I will be back and we'll both see you on the other side. These are the voices of young Lutherans in Mexico City, children who are excited to learn more about their Savior, Jesus. But they need our help because good Lutheran books for kids in the Spanish language are in short supply in Mexico. To learn how you can help tell Spanish-speaking kids everywhere about Jesus in a language they can understand, go to the Lutheran Heritage Foundation website at lhfmissions.org forward slash Juan 316. Welcome back to Thy Strong Word. I'm your host, Pastor Phil Boo. With me today is the Reverend Rick Jones, Chaplain and Vice President of Spiritual Life for the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot, North Dakota. And folks, thank you for joining us this morning, boy. I sure hope that God blesses you through our study of His Word. Remember that Thy Strong Word can be heard in St. Louis on AM 850, but you can also listen live or on demand from anywhere in the world at kfuo.org. You can also subscribe to the show and never miss an episode as a podcast on your favorite platform. But you can also use KFUO's own mobile app. And if that's not enough, you can also just ask your smart speaker to tune to KFUO radio and it'll probably do it almost all of the time. And you can listen to the program wherever you're at. As always, I'm available to answer any question you have or hear your feedback. You can email me at pastorboo at gmail.com. You can also find me on Facebook. Drop by and say hello. Just thank you is what I want to say for being listeners. But now back to our text. So you were talking before the break, Brother Pastor, that, that David exercised restraint. And that's an aspect of it that I had not really given a lot of thought to. And so... Um, it, it is something that I think is compelling. Plus, I think the language used here is, uh, is a little bit of a tease because he <laughs> says, Let's, let me pin him to the ground, and I can't help but think about when we were told Saul tried twice to pin David to the wall. Right. Uh, when he first, with that same spear. Yes. So if, if anyone in their sinful desire for retribution could have been convinced to pin this guy to the ground, you would think that it would be David. 
And right. yet David's restraint is what is on display here. That, along with your illustration, I think just makes it, it you're right, it makes it that much more powerful. Right. So David's restraint here is really showing uh, incredible faithfulness and, and, and righteousness, but not in a self-righteous way, right? It's all coming from his faith in the Lord. He knows this is the Lord's anointed one, and it's not for him to exercise this power over over Saul's life. Yeah, and, and the irony of um, this spear was hurled at David, and he's dodging that blow, and now it's David's faithfulness that is allowing Saul to dodge that same deadly blow by this spear. Uh, and, and again, I, I think we'd be remiss if we didn't really emphasize that how David restrains his general here is with words. He doesn't have to like hold him back. He just says, he says, this is the Lord's guy. You can't do this. We are not going to be the ones that do this. The word is a play, is a thing of righteousness here. It demonstrates that David is in a position of righteousness in that he is allowing that vengeance, that justice, that belongs only to Yahweh. Vengeance belongs to the Lord. It is not David's place to strike down Saul. He is, again, God's anointed one. Only God has the authority to do that. And David is faithful enough to leave it in God's hands. And then, yeah, taking the spear, again, for David, this symbol of irony at this point, but he's taken the spear from Saul. He takes the water jug to show that he has restrained himself when he had the opportunity to kill Saul. You know, I, I want to interject here real quick because last Friday, uh, it was the first Friday of June, and we talked about—I um, talked with uh, Pastor Frank Rufato, and we talked about Romans 13 and, and the, 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 you know, the relationship of God to human authority and, and the necessity that we honor human authority. Um, and, and that's what we're seeing here because we know yeah. that David doesn't say that Saul doesn't deserve to be pinned to the ground right, with a single right. blow. But his faithfulness, as you point out, I think I want just to expand on that a little bit, that the faithfulness isn't just, well, I'm going to honor this king because he's the king. It's I'm going to honor the king because he's God's anointed and Mm -hmm. trust that God will take care of any punishing, any retribution, anything that needs to be taken care of. So it's, it's possible to both disagree with, authority <laughs> to think authority is in the wrong and to desire authority to be changed while at the same time honoring the fact that they're in authority right right the you know the the fourth commandment right honoring father and mother that's what this is about exactly. it's not about absolute blind obedience it's about respecting the position we don't have to agree with everything our presidents do or the views that they hold, but we respect the office enough to know that we are not going to do anything. We use the process that's in place, that's allowed to us to make those changes when they need to be changed. And we speak our minds, but we do so in a way that respects the position because we know all authority, as you alluded to Romans, is placed there by God. They are his representatives in our life to bring his justice, his order, his will into our lives. Uh, And so David is going to be the embodiment of the fourth commandment here and respect the position of the anointed leader of Israel and let God deal with it. And yes, trust that God knows what's best. Now, I will say, though, for as much credit as we're given David for his faithfulness and yes. his restraint, what he does next had to be pretty satisfying for him. Oh, <laughs> so sure. L- let me read verses 17 through 20. Here we go. Saul recognized David's voice and said, uh, pardon me, hold on. Uh, don't make sure I didn't miss anything. I did miss something. Let's go to v- verse 13. My apology. Then David went over to the other side and stood far off on top of the hill with a great space between them. And David called to the army and to Abner, the son of Ner, saying, Will you not answer, Abner? And then Abner (laughs) answered, 
Who are you who calls to the king? And David said to Abner, Are you not a man? Who is like you in Israel? Why then have you not kept watch over your lord and king? For one of the people came in to destroy the king your lord. This thing that you have done is not good. As Yahweh lives, you deserve to die, because you have not kept watch over your Lord, Yahweh's anointed. And now see where the king's spear is and the jar of water that was at his head. All right, so I think that's great, because yeah. there's got to be some satisfaction with not only being faithful, because, you know, it is satisfying to be faithful to the Lord, to, yes. to resist sin. And, and I think God does give us good dispositions, because those are hard things to do. But there's a little bit perhaps of mock, not a little bit, there's a lot of mocking going on here, <laughs> basically saying, hey, look, I got his scepter, his spear, and look at this jar of water, and, you know, you, what are you, you sleeping on the job? I just think it's great. Oh, and that's funny, because they are sleeping on the job, right? That's the, quite literally, what allows it to happen. Um, and yeah, he's, he's definitely satisfied being able to do this, uh, but I think it's, before we jump into verse 13, let's real quick backtrack to that sleep why they're able to do this, right? This is definitely God's hand at work, right? He has put a sleep on the people. He has put Saul and his troops into a sleep. This is the exact same wording that is used when God puts a sleep on Adam when he mm. takes a rib to create Eve, and it is the same sleep that is put on Abraham when God makes his covenant with him. Uh, what's also interesting is sleep is many times throughout the Bible used as an analogy for spiritual blindness and apathy towards faithfulness. And so we see sort of all of these things again in this narrative. So even though David is definitely acting faithfully here, it's because God's allowing it to happen in the first place. He has caused this sleep to happen. And so David's able to go and get this spear, show the restraint, and then retreat the safe distance, perch on top of a hill. And now this fun scene as David not only has a tactical advantage of the high ground, but he also has the moral high ground as he is in his innocence has now spared Saul who is pursuing David without cause. So there's a beautiful sort of analogy even of the events that are happening here. And then, yes, uh, we get David able to act on probably what his heart wants to do. Are you not a man? Accusing Abner of not fulfilling his duty to protect the king. Um, so really it comes down to either Abner is incompetent or he is complacent with what might happen to Saul. Both are terrible accusations and he's got no comeback, right? Uh, and David even then uses um, an oath formula here, as the Lord lives, a traditional oath, oath formula. He used it before to in verse 10 to, to spare Saul, and now he's using it to show the seriousness of the army's dereliction of duty. And the traditional price for a failure of your duty of this magnitude would be to forfeit your own life. Uh, and that same penalty persists for millennia after this time, we see it elsewhere in, in scripture, uh, which is wonderful that we see these different connections. But think of the Roman guards at Jesus' tomb. After the resurrection, they're so scared. The, the, the Bible has to note that the, the Pharisees went and paid them a lot of money so they wouldn't go and try to get out of this to, to say that the disciples stole the body. And then I think of the book of Acts, right? When Paul is in prison and there's the earthquake, and the guards are ready to kill themselves because they assume all of the prisoners escaped. And Paul's able to say, no, 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 don't harm yourself. We are still here. And it leads to, again, that restraint leads to the kingdom expanding. And we see all of these sort of things tied up in this little thing here. But yeah, David calling attention to what he's been able to do. It's not just bragging. He's also proving his accusations. Right. Um, you know, he's demonstrating his proper conduct and honor by not killing Saul when he had the chance. It is. It's just a beautiful turn of everything that's been happening. Well, you're right. So, you know, I'm a little tongue-in-cheek saying he's, he's you know, wagging his tongue at him as we Oh, I'm sure say. he enjoyed it. And I'm sure he did too. But at the same time, it is a demonstration of mercy. I mean, let's be honest. As we right. said before, right. you know, I, 
God is the one who caused them to go into the sleep. Now, whether David knew that or not, I think is dubious. I don't know. Right. I don't, I don't think he did. And it would have been easy to interpret just as the person who was with him said, look, God has given your enemy into your hand. It would have been easy to interpret all of it as, you know, well, yeah, I guess this is obviously, you know, God's sign that I'm to kill my enemy and take over the, but he doesn't. Yep. And and so, yeah, I think that's, I think it's absolutely great. You know, and this is way off topic. It's kind of out of left field. I, sh- I shouldn't say it's off topic. It isn't, but it's out <laughs> of left field. Um, don't we kind of do this today? And, and when it comes to, um, uh, you know, the, 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 the jailer who lets the people go uh, or, or, or he fr- is afraid that he's let the people go. And so he's going to take his own life. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly we don't ask for that, but I almost think of, when you ask someone to resign instead of firing them, it's almost oh, like saying, sure. you know, you're taking responsibility for what's happened and you're leaving. I don't know. I just sort of popped into my head when you were yeah. talking about that. No, the, the, uh, there's a sense of social justice there, right? Or, right. or justice in the social realm. Um, we, this is one of the ways we take responsibility for our, actions, whether they were very poor actions or it was extreme inaction that got us to the state that we're in. One of the ways with which we are held accountable is by to remove ourselves from that position. And often it's because of disgrace, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. The other way is if it has to be done by force is the firing, the termination. But this is, this is, we call on people to resign when they have served in such unworthy ways. Well, and I bring that up too because of sort of what's happening next. Now, David is in the dark, presumably. It's still before dawn. Yeah, yeah. He's yelling out at Abner, <laughs> and I don't think he's just taunting Abner because no, if you no, see no. what happens next, he's saying it loud enough for the boss man to hear. He wants yeah. the king to hear him, and that's what happens in 17. I'm going to read from there till 20. Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is this your voice, my son David? And David said, It is my voice, my lord, O king. And he said, Why does my lord pursue after his servant? For what have I done? What evil is on my hands? Now therefore let my lord the king hear the words of his servant. It is Yahweh who has stirred you up against me. May he accept an offering. But if it is men... May they be cursed before Yahweh, for they have driven me out this day that I should have no share in the heritage of Yahweh, saying, Go, serve other gods. Now, therefore, let not my blood fall to the earth away from the presence of Yahweh, for the king of Israel has come out to seek a single flea like one who hunts a partridge in the mountains. Uh, One thing David also does a good job of is being profusely diplomatic. <laughs> right, right. I mean, even way back when, you know, it was he was sort of, he thought it was kind of sketchy about uh, King Saul giving him his daughters because it would put him in danger. And, and he says uh-huh. things like, uh-huh. you know, oh, who am I to be the, the son-in-law of a king? Or, or I'm just a poor man with no reputation, you know, moments after the women were singing his praises in the streets. So <laughs> he he's very diplomatic. And here we see again, oh, Lord. Oh, my Lord, oh, King. And he points, of course, to Yahweh saying, if, if God's the one who's put you on this mission, so be it. But, right? Yeah. And, that's, and that's where we're at. Yeah. So David here using his proven honor to request a hearing with the king. He's not foolish enough to go into the near presence of Saul by any means, but he wants the king to give credence to his words. And he's going to lay out the, the case, if you will. But I think it's interesting that once Saul hears David's voice, he recognizes David, he brings that familiarity back. My son, David, right? This is it's a reminder. David was in his household. He was the one, you know, playing the harp and soothing Saul in his moments of, of distress. And he's, he's his son-in-law and he is, you know, the, the best friend of Jonathan. It's incredible, the, the intimacy of the that he has with this family. And yet here the king is ready to kill him. And David used, again, all these events. I I had the opportunity. I did do it. I want you to just hear me out. This is that last ditch diplomacy, right? And he lays it all out there. I've done nothing. 
I'm innocent and yet you pursue me. And he, he kind of tries to appeal to the reason, right? If the Lord has stirred you up against me, then let him accept an offering. He, he's, he's saying, if this judgment was put in your heart or in your mind from God, from something I had done, if this is his justice, let me make an offering. Let me atone for my wrongs. But then, you know, he, he realizes that's not what it is. So he has the next part, but the, he has a curse on whoever it is that is giving poor counsel, wicked counsel from wicked men. Uh, that's what he's thinks is more likely the case. Or maybe he does think it's, you know, a spiritual thing that is afflicting Saul, but he, he, he puts it to her. If it's, if it's bad counsel, let them be cursed. Uh, I think of, again, another biblical story here, but the, the advisors to the different Kings in the book of Daniel, they're always giving terrible advice to try to bring about the downfall of the faithful ones. And here we see it, you know, potentially if there's these wicked advisors, well, you need to look out for David because he's going to take your throne. Yeah, and, and he, whenever he takes that advice, bad things happen, or at least doesn't go his way, I should say. Right, right. Yeah, and, and so David, I guess, allows for that in the case of Saul. Yeah. Um, it, it doesn't, again, Saul's been irrational in his behavior to the point yes. where we believe that he may have been not only blinded by sin, but perhaps even mentally disordered. I mean, it may, yes. it's just, it's crazy. Um, and then he puts this out there, and what happens next is... I think surprising for everybody. Part of it is just because the way the story's told, it comes so abruptly. But Saul responds to what David says. I'm going to read through the rest of the chapter. This is going to be verses 21 through 25. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Return, my son David, for I will do more. I will, pardon me. I will no more do you harm because my life was precious in your eyes this day. Behold, I have acted foolishly and have made a great mistake. And David answered and said, Here is the spear, O king. Let one of the young men come over and take it. Yahweh rewards every man for his righteousness and his faithfulness, for Yahweh gave you into my hand today, and I would not put out my hand against Yahweh's anointed. Behold, as your life was precious this day in my sight, so may my life be precious in the sight of Yahweh, and may he deliver me out of all tribulation. Then Saul said to David, Blessed be you, my son David. You will do many things and will succeed in them. So David went his way, and Saul returned to his place. Uh, it's a little anticlimactic, right? I mean, you, <laughs> you, you have 3,000 people on one side. You have 600, 900, I forgot, on the other side. You have these two great, essentially, kings, right? You have the, the current king and the future king. And David sneaks in, and we, is he going to assassinate him? No, he doesn't. Then he mocks him, and then David calls him to repentance, and he he repents. You know, and that's yeah. always surprising. Now, I don't think he ever keeps his word here. <laughs> I will no more do you harm. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, in the context, I feel like we deal with this in the church sometimes, and it becomes anticlimactic because— I think the natural fallen nature of man is to seek revenge. And revenge is not the Christian way. It's not what Christ has called us to. Christ has called us to forgiveness. And so sometimes we get so worked up with the sins that someone has committed against us, and perhaps we, we, we have planned a whole argument, a whole thing to, that will show them how bad they were, and, <laughs> and then you approach them, and the first thing they do is say they're sorry and repent and you don't know where to put all that energy and all that effort, and you realize how foolish it is. And I, I just, I feel like that's what's going on here. It just seems like such a, not a letdown in a bad way, but you, we really thought there was going to be some crazy battle, and everybody just goes home. Yeah, yeah. It's and it's leading towards, or at least it appears like Saul is trying to make it lead towards a different sort of conclusion. Um, and we can you know, speculate on which way that actually would have gone, but we don't get that. But I think it's interesting. David does get his audience, right? He's able to lay out his case. You know, I don't think I've done anything wrong, and yet you're chasing me. You've driven me off. He even says to to serve other gods or to worship other gods, the idea that if you're not in Israel, you're not a part of the people of God anymore. Uh, it's It's that covenant identity. If you don't belong to Israel, you don't belong to God. Life outside 
that community, life outside the covenant love of the Lord is life outside of God's people altogether. And so it's an ancient sort of excommunication that David says, you've driven me to, you have excommunicated me and there's no reason for it. And then he lays it out again. I'm a flea. I am nothing. He's pointing out Saul's foolishness. You're wasting your time and your resources like this. And even describes, you're hunting me like partridge, right? Partridges are often, you flush them, right? So you chase them out and they go and roost again. And then they get flushed out until they're so exhausted that you can just pounce on them. That's how Saul is treating David. He says, basically, you know, this is Psalm 91.3. He will deliver you from the snare of the fowler. David is being delivered again. And I think David's discretion now at this end shows that too. Yes, Saul's confession is there. First, he confesses his sinfulness. Then he confesses his foolishness. And faithlessness often leads to recklessness, right? Or a lack of faith to a lack of virtue. And we've seen all that in Saul. But David is probably left wondering, is this a sincere confession? Or is this just him saying what he wants me to hear so that I will go to him. Now, we don't know if this is going to be a sincere confession, which is then followed by another relapse into wickedness, or if it is just an insincere confession to try to get David close. But um, yeah, I, I think we can, with the way we see our own lives with sin and repentance happen and the lives of others play out, and with what we are instructed in the Eighth Commandment, I think we're going to put the kindest construction on this and assume that Saul has repented for the time being. It's not going to last, we know, but let's just leave it there. But David has more sense than to trust the king's sentiments completely. And so he just has one of the soldiers come and get the spear yeah. and the water jug. He continues to espouse his righteous faith in refusing to harm the Lord's anointed. And again, he's the embodiment of the fourth commandment here. And so he says what he's going to do. He said, let the Lord uh, uh, see me as precious as I see him as precious. And the very closing, you know, Saul knows he's not going to get what he wants, but he ends up speaking prophecy. <laughs> yep. You are going to do great things. And succeed in them. I mean, yeah, yeah. And, there, and we know that Yahweh has departed from from Saul he's rejected right. him but at the same time you're right here is this uh this prophecy of David and it's so and it's so true and they both go home well unfortunately brother we're at the end of our time together yeah. but I'd like to thank my guest this morning the Reverend Rick Jones chaplain and vice president of spiritual life for the Dakota Boys and Girls Ranch in Minot North Dakota brother thanks for being on the show as always thank you Pastor Boo again I always enjoy being here Folks, join us tomorrow for the very next chapter, 1 Samuel 27. As our guest said, David is suspicious of Saul's vow of repentance. In fact, our, our next chapter begins with David saying in his heart, Now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. So what he does is he flees to the territory of his enemies, to Gath, to hide from Saul. We'll talk about that. Lots more tomorrow. So join us then. And until then, may God's peace and blessings be with you all as we pray, Father, keep us in thy strong word.